Before I get to my next guest, Olin Brown, I was talking with Eddie Dry, VP of Domestic Sales for Strixon Cleveland Golf, at the PGA Merchandise Show earlier this year. And I said, Eddie, I like your CBX full-face wedges. How can they help an average player like me play better? Here's what he had to say. An average player, I use one, and I'm in some lies that you can't even believe. And I need all the help I can get. And the face is bigger, and the grooves go all the way up and all the way out to the toe. So if I, you hit it on the toe, you miss it, bam, there's a groove. So I like that. So I carry a 58. There you have it, folks. Try the new CBX full-face wedges from Cleveland Golf. I want to tell you about something else I saw at the PGA Merchandise Show, and that's me and my golf. And they're offering 10% off their brand new range of training aids. I visited their booth and loved their breaking ball putting mat, which allows you to practice breaking putts at home on a traditional putting mat. I've got mine right here in my studio. They've just launched their own golf glove, and they're offering Next on the Tee listeners 10% off the whole range. Use code Chris. 10 for 10% off. That offer expires March 31st of this year. Check out their great array of training aids online at meandmygolf.com. With many years in the business, menswear brand Construct has finally launched its green golf collection, sustainably produced using renewable solar energy and recycled fabric. Hit your best shot in their performance-enhancing polos, quarter zips, and bottoms. Made with four-way stretch, quick-dry, and UV 50-plus protection. From solids to bold, eye-catching designs, Construct Green is the perfect piece for making the best memories on the greens. And the best part? You can head to Construct.com, and that's C-O-N-X-S-T-R-U-C-T.com, and use code CHRIS for 20% off the green collection today. Okay, now back in making his 12th appearance with me here on Next on the T is Owen Brown. Let me remind you about Owen's background. He's from Washington, D.C. He played his college golf out at Occidental College in L.A. He joined the golf team as a sophomore and gradually moved his way up to being their number one player. He was named a first-team all-conference, all-SCIAC golfer in 1980 and 82, and he was inducted into their Golf Hall of Fame in 1997. Their Golf Annual MVP Award is now named in his honor. Owen turned pro in 1984. He went four times on what was then the Nike Tour, twice in 1991, once in 93, and once in 96. He won three times out on the PGA Tour, and he's won twice so far out on the PGA Tour Champions. In 2005, he was named the PGA Tour Comeback Player of the Year, and over the course of his playing career, he's had five wins, 48 top 10s, and 110 top 25s. Included in those five wins, Two so far out on the Champions Tour, one of those being the 2011 U.S. Senior Open and the 2015 Greater Gwinnett Championship right here in Atlanta. He is one of my all-time favorite guests, and I'm very honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the T. Hey, O, thanks for coming back on the show. Chris, your intro, your intro is so nice. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to uh, spend a few minutes with you talking golf. I appreciate you. So I, I want to get your thoughts on uh, what you saw this past weekend at the Masters. Um, it went from being beautiful on Thursday to treacherous on Friday, and uh, Saturday and Sunday were unbelievable. Um, your thoughts about what you saw? Yeah, the uh, the weather, first of all, the, the weather was kind of uh, 
bipolar last week. You know, early in the week it was it was sensational, and the guys who had the uh, the late tea time Thursday and the and the morning time Friday definitely got the benefit of the of the draw. Uh, having said that, the guy who won the tournament was on the opposite side of the draw. The weather came in, and it just looked absolutely torturous out there. Uh, it, nobody was having any fun. Tiger. Tiger looked like a uh, cartoon character. He was drenched and uh, and just miserable, and everybody else was too. And what impressed me so much about the the weather conditions is is watching the best players in golf and the guys who could really move the ball out there go from hitting eight and nine iron into eighteen to 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 you know getting to the front edge with with a uh, with a club that needs a head cover. So. Uh, it, it looked it looked really ugly, and then then things cleared out, and the wind and the wind blew in, and caused them all kinds of trouble. But by the by the time the dust had settled and and the leaders were coming down the the stretch, you know things got mellow. And I noticed that the the pond on sixteen had not a ripple in it, and uh, and so we, we were we were privy to a, a heck of an event, a lot of excitement. Masters never fails to disappoint. It's just an incredible event. The first major always delivers. And oh, did you ever play in a tournament like in weather conditions like we saw? To your point, I mean, Thursday was about as beautiful as it could get. I think highs actually got into the 80s. And by the time we got into Friday and Saturday, the highs were, were barely cracking 50. So a pretty big temperature swing. And obviously the damp, cold conditions made it just that much more miserable, I would think, for those guys to be out there playing. And you ever deal with anything like that? Well, the weather the weather was in the mid eighties on Thursday afternoon, and it was closer to freezing on Saturday morning. Um, it was it was nasty, it was ugly, and uh, and just and gruesome. And I, I haven't, to my recollection, played a tournament where the weather swung that wildly, in terms of you know cold rainy to warm or warm to cold rainy. But you know we've all played in conditions that were nasty, and we played the the uh, the senior British Open at Porthcall a number of years ago, where we had three days of just brutal weather. Tom Watson called it the worst three days he'd ever played in open championship golf. So, you know, you play golf long enough, and you're you're gonna you're gonna have days where you go come off the course. You go, now that was the most beautiful day I've ever played golf, and you're gonna have days where you come off the course and go, you know what? I don't ever want to see a, a golf course again, and I sure <laughs> as hell don't see it under these conditions. You got to play at the Masters three times, I believe. What What are your favorite memories of being a part of the tournament? Well, it's cliche, but it's always the drive down Magnolia Lane. And uh, the first thing that gets your attention driving onto the property is the beautiful uh, Magnolia trees that are on either side of the road. And then you go in the clubhouse and do whatever, and you walk out to go to the golf course and the putting green is there. The first tee is there. And the thing that's always struck me um, from my first experience on the property was how everything on the golf course was below the level of the clubhouse. So Washington roads, a flat street, it's out, you know, everything's the same. And then you go through the clubhouse and all of a sudden everything's below you. And, uh, and you can see almost a piece of almost every hole on the golf course from just above the first tee. So it, it's a remarkable piece of property. The television doesn't do it justice to how to how much the elevation um, 
comes into play and the elevation change comes into play. And I don't know what it is, but it's got to be a couple of hundred feet from the clubhouse down to Ray's Creek. So you're, you're, you're on a hillside, basically, populated by loblolly pines and uh, all the shrubs and, and azaleas and dogwoods and all that stuff. And it's just truly a breathtaking place. You mentioned the elevation changes. Were you aware of that the first time you played in the tournament? Did, did that surprise you how much of a drop off it is from 10 T to 10 green? Well, it's just, you, you, you get a, of a sense of it from watching the guys hit their tee shots off 10. And even when it's into the wind, the ball trundles on down the hill. Right. And it's a, it's a severe, severe downslope. Um, but it's because when you enter the ground, everything is level. There, you can't have an appreciation for how how different that is once you walk out the back door of the clubhouse and towards the putting green and the first tee and the tenth tee and so forth. And and as I said, from the top of that hill, you can see virtually a piece of of every hole. And uh, it's just it's just a it's a it's a little bit of a stunner because you just it's it's unexpected. Larry Mize and Sandy Lyle both called it a career this year at the Masters. They both won in successive years in 87 and 88. Sandy was on the last hole on Friday when play was stopped. Some players thought it was crazy that they didn't let him putt out on 18 when play was suspended. But it was nice that he finished on Saturday. That way, when he was done, Larry Mize right behind him. They got to walk off together. Have you talked to those guys about winning the Masters and what it was like for them? I I kid uh, Sandy because you know he's such he, he people forget he was number one in the world for a while. Um, he was a terrific player. He was a, a a Ryder Cup stud for the Euros, and I, I teased him one time and told him that I thought the shot that he hit out of the bunker on the seventy second hole was one of the most remarkable shots I'd ever seen until I played with him, and th- and then it occurred to me after watching him play and how high he hit the ball and how quickly he hit it up in the air, that it really wasn't that hard a shot at all. So, <laughs> um, wow. he almost, almost didn't take any sand and flicked a seven iron up on the green and then birdied the hole, people forget, to win it outright. Uh, right. A really, really wonderful shot. By the way, when you have an uphill lie, your right foot's below your left foot, and you know you got you to fly. It's easy to hit it fat. It's easy to hit it left. And he just took it right over the top of the flag and kind of, frankly, was a little unlucky. It didn't roll back down the hill and get really close, but he made the putt anyway. Right. And forget about Larry Mize because the shot that he hit in the playoff on number 11 is probably the greatest shot I've ever seen. I mean, it was uh, almost impossible. It was set up as such. And if his ball hadn't gone into the cup, it might have gone five feet by, it might have gone nine feet by, it might have gone in the water, who knows? You know, I mean, the greens had, they had the slicks that day. And people forget because it was Greg Norman who was standing on that green, but uh, Sebi had had lost on the 10th hole and had to walk up the hill by himself. So it was a three-man playoff and Larry ended up beating Greg Norman and Sebi Ballesteros to win the Masters in what amounts to his hometown. So, and what a gent. What a, what a great guy and what a great victory that's going to live forever. Sure is. 
Oh, I'm a huge Jack Nicholas fan. And, and actually, one of my favorite masters was your first one in 98, because at the age of 58 years old on two bad hips, once he'd have replaced the following January, Jack made another charge in the final round that year. I'll never forget when the broadcast came on and Jim Nance starting out by saying, welcome to the final round of the Masters, and you are not going to believe what you're about to see. And there's Jack making another charge, again, at 58 years old. And do you remember, were you around, did you watch the, the final two rounds of that event? I had missed the cut um, and was on my way to Hilton Head, actually. I, uh, the first day that year, the wind had blown. I think we had gusts over 50 miles an hour. And wow. I shot 72 that round and was really in pretty good position, tied seven or eight or whatever going into Friday's round. And I made eight on the first hole, um, which was just stunning and just started the end of the, I ended up missing the cut by a couple shots, but you know, Jack, I don't know. You know, he's been in the game for so long, Jack Nicholas, and the superlatives roll off people's tongues. But I, I just don't know if anybody can quantify uh, his record. It's just in 2008, you couldn't have gotten anybody to bet that Tiger wasn't going to pass Jack. You could not. And then a number of things occurred, physical and emotional and so forth. And Jack Nichols still, still sits atop the heap with 18 majors. And I don't know why they swiped the two U.S. amateurs from him because he really has 20. Uh, and, you know, then Tiger's got three, right? Right. Uh, additionally. But, you know, Jack is just the guy. When you talk about the history of the game, and there have been greats and, and so many greats, but there are only a couple who are in the conversation as the greatest who ever played and Jack Nicholas is one and Tiger Woods is the other. Now the other guys certainly have their place in history, but in terms of, of record and accomplishment, you know, it's, it's Jack and Tiger. And, uh, I've had the privilege of playing with both. I have great admiration for both and great respect as well. Another one of your peers did something great this year at the masters and that's Freddie couples. He becomes the oldest player to make the cut. That's to me at 63 plus years old. That's a huge accomplishment that uh, deserves an awful lot of uh, touting. What are your thoughts about Freddie showing the, the young guys that he can still play? Doesn't surprise anybody who plays with Freddie. Um, in the last uh, half year of golf, you know, he won, he won uh, the SAS last year, shooting 60 in the final round. I, I sent him a text and go, dude, what the, you know, what? <laughs> uh, and he texted me back. He goes, yeah, that was fun. I go, really? <laughs> and still got the firepower, right? When he gets his puck, he doesn't, I, I've rarely played with a guy. I'm not saying that he hits every shot perfectly, but he doesn't ever seem to miss the middle of the club face. You know, all the rest of us are fighting the bottom groove or, you know, the toe of the club or whatever. And Freddie, has just always had that natural hand-to-eye coordination where he just seems to flush all his shots. And he might hit it left or right, maybe misjudge the wind or whatever, but he doesn't ever seem to misstrike the ball. And so at a place at Augusta, like Augusta, where, where the distance control is so important, 
you know, coming into the greens and especially look, Freddie was the longest guy on tour for a long time, but now he's not playing against those kids. And so he's maybe taking a couple extra clubs where, the, you know, they're hitting nines and eights and he's hitting sevens and sixes. Um, but his ability to control his flight, his spin, uh, and his distance uh, makes it uh, possible for him to compete and to play well in that environment. And, you know, he does it year in and year out. And that's the thing. Talking about Jack a minute ago at 58 contending. Freddie here at 63 making the cut. Phil finishing second, tied for second at 52. There's something about Augusta National that the former champions can can continue to contend there year after year, even though they're in, at you know later on in their careers. And I don't know if it's that local knowledge and knowing where on the greens you have to play or where you have to hit your tee shot so that your second shot has the right angle to get in there. But it's something about Augusta National. Maybe it's the ghost. I don't know. That allows these guys to continue to play so well. It's amazing to me. There's no other course in golf, save St. Andrews, maybe Pebble Beach, where experience has more value. And, um, you know, there's that old chestnut about experience is something that you get when you don't get what you want. But it's also the repetition of having done things over and over and, and having seen all of the different conditions, knowing, for example, when the wind is blowing the flag down and left to right on 11, that it's really into and right to left on 12. I don't, you know, you, you only learn those things from having paid the price by not knowing them before. And a guy like Freddie, who's played there for, I don't know, 40 years or whatever it is. Uh, and Jack, the same, and Tom Watson before he stopped playing, and Gary and all those guys, Arnie. That course really, because of the hill, again, we're getting back to the topography of, of Augusta National. Because of the hill, the wind isn't blowing the same direction on one as it's blowing on the bottom of 11 and 12. And the net result of that is that these guys understand how the wind changes its course during the round and where they have to play and the angles at which they have to enter a certain hole. I mean, you saw the guys who knew what they were doing on number 13 on one of the days when the flag stick was in the back of the green, they, the guys really tried to push it up to the right so that they could pitch it up the slope instead of laying back to 90 yards or whatever, where they were trying to carry a ball, spin it and control it on a very small area. So you, you watch these things over and over and it's easy enough to say watching it on TV. But until you've been there and seen or felt un under your feet the angle of the slope where the ball is relative to, the, to that and your, where your ball needs to be in your stance and so forth, you have to have hit those shots repeatedly to have any kind of understanding of how it's going to react coming into those greens. And that's where those guys have a huge advantage. Oh, I would normally say that everyone was disappointed that Tiger ended up having to withdraw on Sunday morning. But the weather and the way he was limping around on Saturday, I think, made it obvious that he wasn't going to be able to give it a go on Sunday. He's dealing with plantar fasciitis again in that right foot. So all of the hills at Augusta National, on top of the cold, all that stuff did him no favors. But as we look ahead to next month's PGA Championship at Oak Hill up in Rochester, New York, which is way north of the city right there on Lake Ontario, I mean, average highs are going to be roughly what they were. I mean, lows... You know, uh, highs may get into the upper 60s, lows in the upper 40s. 
you you played there for the senior PGA championship back in 2019. What was it like? What was the course and the weather like when you guys tried to, to play Oak Hill in 19? We played one day, I believe it was cut day, where the wind came in and gusted over 40 miles an hour again. So it was it wasn't overly cold, fortunately, but it was blustery and very challenging. And that golf course, while it has some more some more holes that are that are generally more level. It also has a lot of side hills and awkward stances and elevation changes. Now they've they've uh, they've had a renovation since and they've redone some holes. Um, but Oak Hill is is one of those historical golf courses. Uh, Curtis won his second U.S. Open there, and Jay Haas won a senior PGA there, and he was at plus nine. And there, you just don't know what you're getting with that lake effect weather. You could have a day, in all seriousness, it's 82 or three degrees, and the next day it could be in the 40s and pouring rain uh, with the wind blowing sideways. So it just, it's May, it's the end of springtime in that part of the world, and we're just going to wait and see what happens. But um, I suspect that, you know, unless things are kind of unusual that we're going to see a variety of different conditions throughout the week of that championship, whether it's early in the week, midweek or late in the week, um, those guys are going to have to contend with that stuff. The other big story off the course is the proposed model local rule of rolling the golf ball back. I think you and I have talked about this a little bit in the past where, you know, Jack and Gary player have been talking about the need to, to do that for decades. Rory came out in support of it. Tiger and Fred Ridley gave their support during their press conferences last week. Tiger actually was talking about it going all the way back to 2017. How do you feel about that idea? I think that one of the great one of the great features of the game of golf is that I can walk into a pro shop and buy a sleeve of golf balls that I know is no different than what I'm playing anyway in the event that I've run out. And I think I think that uh, this whole ball controversy started back in the uh, in the nineties. Um, there, you know, there was an evolution from the wound ball to solid core golf balls to multi layer balls, and then starting around two thousand, things really, really had had a jump. And it, it's a complicated issue, but. If you're rolling back the golf ball for a fraction of a percent of golfers who play the highest level game uh, that there is, and then you're requiring anybody who wants to enter in that arena to have to learn to play an entirely different product or to play a different product than they do that they do at their local club, I think I think that's a big ask, and I I would be entirely in favor of changing the performance of the golf ball, but having it be throughout the game and not specific to upper level professional golf. So I'm a fan of dealing with the distance issue. And look, people are going to say there are better athletes playing now. And that's a fact. There are more, uh, there's certainly more depth, but nobody ever hit the ball harder than Jack Nicholas. And there sure as hell wasn't, and isn't a better athlete ever than Sam Snead. So I just think there are more of them. Um, and I think it's important to recognize that there are a lot of constituencies here. There's the 
there's the competitive component, there's the professional component, there's the there are the manufacturers. You know, 40 years ago, there were only a handful. There was what Dunlop and Slazinger and uh, maybe a Kushnet, Titleist, and so forth. Now there are just a, a list of of uh, of different club companies and ball companies, and there there's a lot there's a lot to do to get a lot of people on the same page. And I think I think uh, I think it's important to get everybody moving the same direction. Um, and to my point about about how far the ball goes now, you know. In 1968, uh, I think the world record 100-meter dash was 9.9 seconds. And now it's 9.79 sections, which is a fraction. Let's say it's 1%. And golf balls are going 10% farther. So it's not because of the athletes. It's because of the athletes and the evolution in technology, you know, with graphite shafts and bigger club heads and and, uh, composite club heads. And then the golf ball aerodynamics and uh and r&d and so there, there are all kinds of things that have entered into the evolution of why golf balls go farther i played with jim rice back in 1991 and i promise you there aren't any golfers who could have hit, hit a golf ball harder than jim rice and downwind he hit it about three and a quarter when 300 was the gold standard but into the wind his ball went about 205 because it climbed up into the air and that was spin related and, uh, you know, the softness of the golf ball, the wound ball with the lot or whatever. So there are all kinds of issues here. I think that the USGA is doing the right thing by having a period, uh, you know, a, uh, a comment period. But it wouldn't surprise me if this were like a balloon that, that were being floated to try and get more people thinking more along the same lines instead of just talking at one another, start talking to one another about how to get this thing right. What are your thoughts about the argument? Well, why don't we just make changes on the golf course? Let's make the fairways more narrow. Let's grow up the rough. Maybe you put some bunkers or something out there at 320 and make them think about it. Is that is that a viable solution or no? Yeah, it's a viable solution. It's already been done. Um, the tour had narrow fairways and five-inch rough for a long time. And guys started, you know, tearing ligaments and getting you know, elbow tendonitis and all kinds of other problems um, because hacking it out of that stuff is not that easy either. And yes, you could, you could reposition bunkering um, that would have, you know, an effect on the problem. But the whole idea is, is not to take clubs out of people's hands. It's to give them a challenge and using each club. And so if, if a golf course Fred Couples won his master's on was just barely under 7,000 yards. And now they've had to lengthen that almost 10% to accommodate the guys who are hitting it a lot farther. That, that requires an entirely different approach. Um, but if you, if all you do is move the bunkering, now what you do is you take the driver out of the hands of the longest guys. I don't begrudge those guys hitting it forever. They, they deserve to, right? But they, sh- they should have to pay a penalty for hitting an errant shot. And the problem with the, with the equipment nowadays is, is that it keeps the ball from veering wildly offline. And so the guys are, are able to swing freely and with, with no fear of really hitting a wildly erratic shot like you used to see back in the day. And, uh, you know, for example, take a shot that goes into the wind, you know, guys just tee it down and crown it a little bit and it knuckle, knuckle bleeds out there and goes just as far as it does, uh, without the wind blowing. So, you know, there used to be a penalty for 
for hitting, you know, for not being able to control your spin off the driver or off your irons uh, that you don't see as much nowadays as you saw 40 years ago. And uh, at the risk of saying, get off my lawn, that's my statement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just a couple more before I let you go. And just uh, talking about this season out on the Champions Tour, are you going to be back this week at the uh, Invited Celebrity Classic in Irving? Yeah, looking forward. I, I missed the event last year. Uh, and so I, I haven't seen the golf course. And I've heard there are a couple of holes that need extra attention. So I'm going to get out there on uh, early in the week and try and figure that place out. And, uh, you know, I've gotten into more tournaments this year than I expected, more than I did last year at this to this point. So I'm excited about, about playing. And I've been playing, you know, my finishes haven't been all that great, but I've actually, my better is better than it was and my and my bad is better than it was too so i'm seeing some positive in in my golf and uh i'm kind of enjoying doing it again and and uh, looking forward to getting out well i'm counting on you being in the field again this year at the mitsubishi electric classic here in atlanta because the time i spent with you out there last year was probably the most fun thing i've done in the game of golf and uh in the 40 odd years i've been playing or been around the game so i thank you very much for that and i'm hoping i get to see you when you're here i'm really just sorry to hear that that's uh, the high point of of uh (laughs) (laughs) that is actually that's actually tragic and and if we can't make it better than that so uh, come on out i'm gonna play in the monday program again the stewart sink i'm looking forward to getting back Uh, you know i love that golf course i i People forget that Greg Norman designed it. I think he did an incredible job. It's really good. Now, this year, we got a little bit of, of a different challenge because there are 27 holes there, and we're playing the nine we don't normally play because I guess they're doing some re- renovation to the other. But uh, it, I think it's a it's a beautiful piece, piece of property. And the golf course is, you know, it's, it's pretty challenging. It's pretty long, and it's got some demanding demanding shots on it. So I'm looking forward to getting back there. Lo- I love those people up there. Mitsubishi's a great group. They sponsor multiple events on our tour. Uh, Monty Ortel's the tournament director up there. He's an awesome guy. So I'll look forward to seeing you up there. Oh, before I let you go, remind our listeners, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing by following you online and on social media? Uh, they can chase me down on Twitter, Olin Brown, I guess on Twitter. And that, and that's pretty much it. And uh, come on out, watch some of us play on the champions tour. It's great golf, great guys. And uh, you'd be you'd be surprised at how uh, how good guys still are in their fifties. It's just remarkable. Yeah, it is. Owen, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of this show. You're fantastic, my friend. I look forward to catching up with you when you're here. Great to spend some time with you, Chris. And thanks for asking me to follow Cal because it's a t- it's a tall order. He's a great dude, and <laughs> yeah, I know he does a great job as well. He's he's a good man. Looking forward to seeing him back out. He's He's been through it this last year with all his physical issues, but you know, he, he doesn't lose his sense of humor. And I, and I love that about the guy. So <laughs> me too. Take care. I will catch up soon. Take care, bro. See you, man. That is the great Olin Brown folks. And they just don't come better than that guy. And I, and I'm, and I'm sincere and he can downplay it all he wants or think it's tragic, but uh, I got to, uh, to walk shoulder to shoulder with him uh, during a practice round at Sugarloaf last year, and it was the best day I've had on a golf course ever. He's just such a wonderful human being and a lot of fun, and he makes you laugh, and uh, he still plays really, really good. And when I say that, 
I don't think he missed a shot all day long. I think he hit every fairway and every green and, and made a couple of putts. And if we were actually keeping score, I'm thinking he's in the mid sixties for that round. He played beautifully. So, uh, like I say, I just, I enjoy him so much. I'm looking forward to catching up with him when he's here in a few weeks. 